0: Please.
1: Truth Seekers and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and & Rhythm and & Funk and & Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at G at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership longtime former Commodore's bassist and composer, Ronald LePred. From 1970 to 1986, he set down the rhythmic foundation for one of the greatest and most popular funk, R&B, and pop bands of all time. During that period, the group recorded more than a dozen successful albums, at their peak having four straight reached number one R&B, and that included 23 top uh, top 25 R&B singles and 16 top 40 pop hits. Among those songs and other favorites were I Feel Sanctified, Machine Gun, Slippery When Wet, This Is Your Life. Sweet Love, Give Me My Mule, Fancy Dancer, Just To Be Close To You, High On Sunshine, Brick House, Easy, Zoom, Funky Situation, Too Hot To Trot, Three Times A Lady, Sail On, Still Old Fashioned Love, Lady You Bring Me Up, and Oh No. Since the late 1980s, LaPred has lived in New Zealand, where he comes to with us today. Ronald, how are you? Thank you for joining the show.
0: I'm great. i I that sounds like a wonderful person you just
1: introduced.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. Yeah, it can be a little overwhelming. I know sometimes when it's all put together like that, it's like, wow, right? I know, I know. It was, it was like a dream, you know? It
0: was like a dream. We would go into rehearsal, and we'd, we'd do the song, Slippery and Wet, and uh, we had no idea that it would affect people as it did, you know? So. We were lucky.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. I, you know, you're officially the farthest uh, we've gone to do the show. We've done a number of shows uh, from Europe, but never wow. uh, to down under in that area. So uh, glad you're coming in nice and clear. And it's so indeed. good to have you today. Indeed. 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 Yeah. Is- you know, New
0: Zealand, New Zealand is now
1: probably the film capital of the world. So oh. there's a lot of stuff going on down here. Yeah. The... Um, Peter Jackson, right? He's from yeah. there. And, yeah. yeah. He, he started it all off. That's right. <laughs> you haven't seen any hobbits down there, have you?
0: No, I try to stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try to stay away from the hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> well, mm-hmm.
1: man, you've been down there for like three decades now, right? Yeah, about 34 years up in here. Wow. wow. Uh, I, came, I came for a two-month vacation.
0: I came for a two-month vacation, and, and uh, when I got here, I stayed for approximately four years before I went back to USA. And when I went back to USA, it was much too much, too much, too much. I mean, America, the, the grocery store is big as the supermarket here, you know. So it was, it was a big
1: change, big change. Yeah, that's... Um... Extreme out in the country, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Indeed. uh, Before we uh, jump into uh, the questions, I do want to say special thanks out to Eric Parker, who helped connect us, and that was much appreciated. So thank you, Eric. Yeah. Can you tell everybody, you know, um, how you first got into music before the Commodores? Wow.
0: uh, I'm, of course, from Tuskegee and in Tuskegee my mother was a hairdresser she was a beautician and her co-worker had a son who had a band and this this son had booked uh, an engagement and he told the people that he had a full rhythm section and uh, he had everything except a keyboard player so I was like 16 years old, he asked me to sit behind the piano because he'd heard me plucking, you know, at home. He heard me plucking. He said, you just sit behind the piano so that I can show the man that I got a full rhythm section. And uh, I sat there for an hour and a half, and he paid me $75, and I didn't play anything. I didn't play. I just sat there. And uh, when he paid me the $75, I said, maybe something in this music thing, you know. So I better learn how to play this piano. And I played keyboards with a band called the Corvettes in Tuskegee for, oh, maybe four or five years. No, three, four years. Because I was in high school. And uh, as I started playing music, I started playing the tuba the sousaphone, the trumpet, the trombone, uh, French horn. And then I got a music scholarship to Mississippi for a applied music. I had to play in the marching band and in the concert band, but I majored in electrical engineering. So, uh, I, I started playing and then, uh, One day, Lionel Richie and Thomas McFerry walked up to me and said that uh, their bass player had been drafted into the Army for the Vietnam War. And did I know a bass player? And of course, I said, yeah, I'm the best bass player in town. Never had picked one up. (laughs) And we started, uh, they started rehearsal. I thought I'd go to rehearsal and they would show me some music and then I'd have to read the music and play the bass. But they, they went and they put a record on and they said, this is the song that we're going to learn. And I don't have perfect pitch. I have relative pitch. So I'm always close to the note where it starts. And then I
1: figured it out from that.
0: And that's how I started playing bass guitar.
1: <laughs> yeah. wow that reminds me a little bit of i had uh james alexander the bar on not long ago and he got into that group also not ever ha- pl- having played the bass and basically yeah. learned on the job you know
0: yeah james james that was my boy uh i i we really got on he was uh i thought he was a nice bass player stayed in the right place at the right time you know
1: Ronald, what were your first impressions of uh, Thomas and Lionel when you first met them? You know What kind of guys were they? Well, well, they were at Tuskegee
0: Institute. They were at the university, and I was in the city. And there were maybe three or four bands there. They were called the Jays before they were called the Commodores. And uh, the bass player was the lead singer and the leader of the group. And uh, I mean, he left a pretty big footprint to feel when I, when I got in his place. But we were always competing with each other. My group, uh, the Corvettes, were competing with the Jays. And, and uh, so we knew each other. We knew each other. And, and, uh, but we'd never worked together. We'd, we'd never worked together. And they, they, they knew that I played keyboard. They, they had no idea that I played bass. I didn't either, but we
1: learned. <laughs> yeah. how, how quickly were you able to progress on bass from there? Ooh, well, we, when they,
0: when they asked me to come to rehearsal, I had a friend who had a bass guitar and an amplifier. I took his bass guitar to my house and I put on James Brown, uh, uh, what was that? Cold Sweat. Dun, dun, dun. And, and I learned that on the bass. And, and that was the only song that I knew to play on the bass. And when we went to rehearsal, they put on uh, Liar, Three Dog Night. And I had to, I had to learn that. And uh, after that, everything everything I heard, I learned to play everything I heard. And then we started doing our own music. So most of my lifetime, all of the bass parts that I played, I made them up. You know, I never had to play anybody else's bass. I would listen to Larry Graham. I would hang out with James. I knew, I knew a lot of bass players, but I never had to play their
1: music. So Ronald, when you came into the group, were the other members all in place at that point? Were you the last one to join the six? I was the last one. Uh, Andre
0: Callahan was a drummer, and Michael Gilbert was a bass player. And they both got drafted together. They found Walter Orange before they found me. and uh, clyde was Clyde was a drummer from Montgomery. And he came in and he was playing and singing and carrying on. And he was awesome. He was awesome. And at that time, Lionel Richie didn't want to sing. Mm -hmm. He he would only sing one song in the show. And uh, we decided to say, okay, we don't want to be a band. We want to be a group we want to entertain we want to have uniforms we want to dance we want to sing we want to do so and we said that the drummer even though he was the singer he couldn't be in the center of the stage out front so we made Lionel Richie the singer and he hated it
1: he was mostly a sax player at first yeah, right he yeah. was a
0: sax player he he played saxophone yeah. and William King played trumpet And, I mean, we would light it up, you know. We would really light it up. It was a lot of fun. We were young, weren't afraid of anything, had no problems. And it was just great, just great.
1: Legend has it that the name was basically just picked out of a dictionary or something like that. Is that true?
0: Accidentally, we took a dictionary and laid it on its side and let it fall open. And right next to Commode was Commodore. <laughs> we could have been the Commodes, but we landed on Commodore and that's the way it was.
1: Wow. <laughs> mm. um, and, and early on, you guys opened for the Jackson 5, right? Yeah, we, we, uh, when, we, when we signed our contract with
0: Motown, uh, Suzanne Paz was a very dear friend to our manager, Benny Ashburn. And uh, she came to watch us play at the lower price turntable on 58th and Broadway or something uh, downtown in New York. And she said, okay, okay, we're going to take these boys on, on the road with a group of mine. And we said, okay, she said, you got 40 minutes on the stage and you gotta be on time to get on and on time to get off. You can't go over 40 minutes. So we said, okay, we set the show, we worked, we rehearsed, we got everything, what we said, what we did, what we played, we had it all time. So that at 40 minutes, pop, it was over. We had no idea who we were working with. She said, just one of my groups. And I think the first show was in Syracuse, New York. And we went from Alabama to Syracuse, and we got there, and there was two foot of snow everywhere. You couldn't see anything. It was cold. We couldn't find where we were going to play. And we drove by the auditorium, and we saw the billboard live. Jackson 5, special guests, Commodores. We just freaked out. We didn't know what to do. Jackson 5, I want you back, ABC, all of these things, all these little kids running around. And they wanted us to hurry and get off the stage so that the Jackson 5 could come out. But we ended up working with them for about four years. Every, Every place they went, Commodores went with them. And uh, that was really Michael Jackson gave me my start and uh, big big thing, you know. He put us on stage, and they were playing
1: eighty, nine, one hundred thousand people, and we were the opening act. Wow, it's an interesting pairing, you know, especially in hindsight.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And later on, Michael stole. Few of our ideas for uniforms, too. <laughs> That's,
1: I could see that, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, wow. So eventually, I guess you learned how to satisfy that youthful audience that they brought.
0: Well, what, what, what really happened is all of the kids had to be accommodated, uh, uh, uh. they had to be with their parents. And we were, we were really entertaining the parents and the parents started liking the Commodores and they started taking the music home and things like that. And then they indoctrinated the kids to like it too. So uh, we went on. And then one day, I mean, after doing all of these fantastic things with the Jackson 5, we did a show in Des Moines, Iowa. And it was the Jackson 5 and the Osmond and Commodores. There were 180,000 people at the show, and they just went crazy. I mean, it was just something out of a fairy tale, you know. We, we, we couldn't believe it. Donnie Marie and, uh, and all of the Osmonds. And Michael Jackson and Tito and, and Jermaine and, and then Lionel Richie and Commodore. It was something
1: to. Whew. Wow. They've probably never seen anything like that since in that part of the country. I don't um. think so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't think so.
1: So, were you guys, um, before you did your first record with Machine Gun, um, were you guys playing originals with the Jackson 5 opening, or were you playing covers or what kind of stuff? Uh, we
0: were we were doing we were doing our rendition of covers. We would we would take it and we had a little thing that we would commodorize, you know. We would put our little breaks in it and we would do our little routines and do all of that. And then and then uh, but at the same time. Barry Gordy was putting us through his machine. You know, he had a he had a music production scene. He had the fabulous Funk Brothers. He had uh, Edwin Starr. He had all of the all of his producers uh, Norman Whitfield and and everybody. They would write the song, and then uh, fabulous Funk Brothers would record it. And then they would bring the the group in to sing on it. And we we kept telling them, no, we want to play our own music. We want to do our own thing. And we had gone through everybody in the company. We had gone through everyone, Hal, Davis, everybody. We had gone through everyone trying to find a song. And they put us with uh, Pam Sawyer and Gloria Jones, two of their writers. And uh, we did. Uh, we went to muscle shows, and we recorded uh, "Are You Happy with What You Got?" Uh, you got a little fringy, and and uh, we played that on show with the Jack and Five. On the first tour, we went around the USA. The first tour was ninety-three shows in 102 days. So we were working hard. And when we got to LA, we saw Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy said, okay, we're going to let you all record your own music. Go to the studio and do something. And Mylon Williams had this song that we wanted to record, Machine Gun. And it, it took us it took us almost three weeks to find, to get the instrument to make that sound. It took us three weeks to get that program and put into the studio so that we could do it. And then we did it. Barry Gordy got the song. He put it on red vinyl. And he sent it out to all of his people around the world. And that red vinyl me, make this song work. And it went to
1: number one. Was there any pushback that it didn't have vocals? Uh,
0: It we it didn't have it didn't have vocals, but we were a new group and they didn't know that we had singers, you know. And at that time, at that time, uh, when they put the 45 out, they put a woman on the front of the cover because I think they didn't want everybody to know that the group was black. Mm-hmm. And it because we didn't sound black. And, and they put it out and they did it. And then when we put out the, the album, they saw the picture of the band. And they said, oh my goodness, look at it. These are, these boys are straight out of Alabama. <laughs> and and
1: uh, it's, it
0: was good. It was real good.
1: And you were matched up with uh, James Carmichael right from that first album, right?
0: No, James Carmichael came on maybe first album, Machine Gun album. Yeah. James Carmichael was there. Yeah, but th- that wasn't the first album. That was the first one that everybody knew about. We had gone, we had gone with uh, Willie Hutch. We had gone with uh, what's the boy War Dum Dum. It was Star. It it was Star. We'd been with him. We had been with Hal David, who was the producer for the Jackson 5. And uh, we told him, we don't need a producer. We need an arranger. We need someone to come in and and take what we're doing and put it into the form of what records were. And then we met James Carmichael. And I think that was a marriage made in heaven then, you know, because he, he was from Gaston, Alabama. We we're from Tuskegee. Uh, it, we, would bring him, we would bring him back to Alabama, and he would stay there with us for two or three months rehearsing and working the songs out and things like that. And he just got to be the seventh member, you know. Everything we did, we went through James Carmichael. Thank God for him, too.
1: Yeah, I was going to say before you said it, that it sounds like he was the seventh member.
0: That's right. He was the seventh member. And, and he, would, he was always very gentle, but he knew his music. You know, he knew his music. He could, he could hear anything. He told us after we put out three times a later, he said the song was so interesting. He said the song was so interesting. If he had paid attention, it was a waltz. Thanks for the time that you give. He said, "I would have never put that song out if I realized that it was a waltz." (laughs) But
1: it slipped under the cover. Um, man, I I feel sanctified was probably uh, well, machine gun I heard too, but I feel sanctified was the one that just really first captivated me for the group because it was so funky. Um, and it just really set, I think, that template for that sound in the funk side of things, that the mm. Commodores just worked like crazy. Um, do you remember actually laying that down and, you know, that experience? Do I remember? Oh, we did that song.
0: I feel, yeah, I feel safe. And, and, and when it, when it started, I think we recorded that track maybe 115 times in the studio then we had about 115 takes of it and after playing so long your fingers get sore and as my, as my fingers got sore I couldn't strike the guitar like this because it was so sore so I started hitting it like that and that's how the pop was that, that slap bass was, was born. I was just hitting it because we were gonna go back and do it again after, I, after we cut it and my fingers warmed up, but it fell in the, in the groove so well that they kept the, the slap on the thing. Cal Harris, the engineer, took some things and enhanced it, but it was because
1: my hand was so sore I couldn't pluck the strings. <laughs> well, when you mentioned plucking, I'm thinking you know of Larry Graham at that time. And were were there who were a couple of bass players from that era that you really were uh, enamored with? That was only one, and you just called his name.
0: <laughs> that was only one. I thought that uh, I thought that that Larry Graham was always in the right place. You know, a lot of bass players, Marcus Miller, he, he's a hell of a bass player. He can, he can play all around everything, but bass has to be in the right spot. You know, if it's in the right spot and it gets the bones to shake of, of a human being, then you, you, you're really working it then. I have seen I have seen music go to Japan and they can't speak a word, but they understand the feeling of music. I go to Philippines they don't speak a word of English, but they feel that they got that feeling Germany, Switzerland, Scotland, England, France I mean it, it, they don't understand what you say but Everybody feels the same way. Everybody get that feeling, you know, and it just lights you up. And I think that was that was really what our asset was.
1: Were there any other groups that you guys kind of looked at and you aspired to at that time? You know, were you looking at people like, I don't know, Earth, Wind of Fire or other bands and saying, you know, uh-huh. we kind of want to, you know, either be like them or surpass them or... groups,
0: Uh, when we were were coming along, there were lots of groups. There was uh, Confunction, there was LTD, there was uh, Ohio Players, there was was Gap Band, Charlie Wilson. I mean, these, these people, they were doing it. You know, they were they were making music, they were making songs, they had funk, they had they had a, a lot of togetherness. But we wanted to be bigger than Rolling Stones, bigger than the Beatles. We wanted to we wanted to be that way, you know. Uh, we we, we we enjoyed playing in nightclubs, but we thought we needed bigger space. And if, if we had a bigger space, then we had to have a bigger show. So we started doing costumes and we started doing, in 1978 in the USA, Commodores had a tour on the road that had 18 semi 40 foot long trucks with the stage and the show on it. We had 72 people, roadies and people in the production. We we tried to we tried to make it bigger than life. You know, we tried to
1: I, I saw I saw the tour. I I was at the one, if you remember at UCLA Poly Pavilion.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was there. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, but you know, we we would have exploding stages, and we would do it. Oh, used to be some of the funniest things you ever want to see. Thomas McClary, God bless him, he loves he loves Jimi Hendrix, and we were playing, and and we had put some cotton on his guitar like a like a pad, and he was going to run over to the side, and uh, Rody was going to spray lighter fluid on the. Cotton, and he's playing his solo and he runs back to the left side and he's playing and he's doing and then he runs back over to where the roadie was and the roadie was supposed to strike a match and put it on his guitar so it would burn. But while he was playing, he was shaking his guitar like this and the roadie was squirting the lighter fluid, but he got on his uniform. And when he struck the match and put the match on the cotton, his whole pants leg lit up. Wow. And he would run it out back of the stage. <laughs> Commodores were lying on the floor laughing. <laughs> we couldn't play another note. It wasn't <laughs> the funniest thing. <laughs> Where was it? It was funny. It was, we were in someplace Dayton or Cincinnati or something like that, somewhere up in, up in the Midwest. He did that, boy. We were no
1: good after that. <laughs> did, did, you, did you drop that from the show or keep doing it? Uh,
0: uh, we dropped the pad, yes. <laughs> we dropped the pad. And, and uh, he never wanted to do it again, no. I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, but it used to be some funny stuff. We used to, and people didn't know anything would happen, you know, but it used to be funny, and Commodores had no game face. If something happened funny, everybody laughed. (laughs) Everybody laughed. It was something else.
1: Well, you know, having been at that one show that year at UCLA, I mean, I can say that the band's energy was just unbelievable. I mean, Mm. so much... uh, intensity and and just having a great time and just, you know, really, really energetic.
0: Yeah, we would, we would, uh, Commodores, I think, I think the the road to their success was every day at nine o'clock in the morning, if we were not on the road touring or anything, every day we'd go into rehearsal at nine o'clock. And we'd stay there from nine o'clock in the morning until two o'clock in the morning every day. Mm. And and uh, when you when you when you spend that much time together, I know when the drummer is making a mistake. I know when somebody missed the word. We know how to cover it up before anybody gets gets aired that something's happened, you know. And that was the key to our success. That was, and Lionel Richie writing some great songs, you know, uh, <laughs> great songs. Thomas McCleary wrote some great songs. Mylon Williams wrote some great songs. I wrote some great songs. So, So, I mean, you know, and it was in-house competition. It was in-house. Everybody was competing to try to get a song on the album. So we knew that we had to beat Lionel Richie or we had to beat Milo Williams or we had, you know, and it, it, it made the album vary, you know, had different kinds of music on it and things like that. And we got to be an album selling group rather than
1: singles. Exactly yeah yeah i was just gonna say that um and yeah just front to back they were so consistently strong those albums um and really started i mean machine gun was was strong but really with caught in the act to me from that point on it was just a whole another ball game you guys were just so fully realized and there was you know the great funk and the great ballads and just had everything and Mm -hmm. um Slippery one wet. I mean, I bugged out on that one. That was just (laughs) an incredible track. You know, and I I thought it should have hit number one, pop, uh, whatever. Some people, you know, there were issues didn't play it. but And then Wild Cherry had such a huge hit based on, you know, the commoners, like, template. That didn't seem right, but that's how it went.
0: Yeah, that's how it went. Yeah, for sure. But that's all right. I taught taught them everything they know. Wild Cherry. (laughs) Yeah, but there was some that was there was a lot of good inspiration in those days for music you know now most people most people say they don't like the rap music, and you know it's not it's not up to that and it's not to this but if you ever try to do it, you will find out how clever these young kids are I mean because uh, First off, as a musician, it is the most difficult thing to maintain that same groove all the way through the song. No changes, no highlights, no nothing, and still make it feel as though it changed. And these young kids, they're really on to it. I mean, they, they wouldn't know a note if it walked up to them and slapped them in the face. but they got that feeling, and they got the they they got the technique to run in that computer, and they can get it to do what they
1: hear, and and that's amazing to me. Well, and also hip hop and raps built on funk, anyway. Yeah, yeah, they,
0: they they start from funk. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing that's keeping me going. They go back to Commodore stuff, and they they sample a lot of our music, and most of it. It's mine that they sample <laughs> most of it's mine
1: yeah that's great uh as long yeah. as you get as long as you get those residual checks and, and it's all about uh, that, uh, we, it. we don't do too bad yeah. <laughs> yeah we don't do too bad yeah good to hear good to hear um, so what uh, what are a couple of your favorite tracks or favorite memories in the studio with the band from the 70s wow now, my
0: all-time favorite song for the Commodore, when we did it, when we did the song in the studio, it it just it just hit my my vibrating tone. And if I was sad, I listened to the song, it would pick me up. If I was happy, it would slow me down so that I could get focus and things like that. And the song was uh why you want to try me? And, and, and uh, as it, it, when it got down to that, ooh, whoa, 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 whoa then that was, that was bringing it home to me. Once I heard that part, I'm ready to go on stage and perform for the Queen of England. It doesn't matter who's out there. It's going to be a nice performance. It's going to be really nice. That thing, it always tuned me up. I don't know why. I, Brick House was nice. Easy was nice. Three Times a Lady was nice. But that Why You Want to Try Me, it was, it was just, it, it, it just struck, struck my soul. You know, I, I love that song. Mm. Is there another one, too, or is that? <laughs> uh, i tell you, when uh, my wife and I were sitting in New Zealand, when we first went on to the first lockdown, when everything was going crazy and people all around the world were suffering and carrying on. We sat up on a... And I didn't, I didn't usually listen to the Commodores that much. We, we sat out on the patio and uh, we played the song uh, Heroes. Mm. We played Hero. And uh, for some reason, Two years ago, I actually heard that song. And I was sitting there saying, what makes a man walks alone into battle? He's an angel of mercy for everyone. And, and uh, at that time, uh, Jacinda Ardun just she did the unthinkable. She closed New Zealand off to the world. She said, we're gonna save this here. We're gonna gonna take care of the people. And uh, I just started thinking, wow, you, you never know who the hero is gonna be until they step up. And at that time, she was the hero. She stepped up and she set the diagram for every country to save its people. And they eventually got on board, you know, and they started closing it down. They started to stop people from going. But
1: that song just resonates with me, the, the words to that song. And I think that just speaks so well to the timelessness, a lot of those songs, you know. Um, yeah. Here we are so many years later, and they're still just as relevant and poignant and sound great. Um do you remember, Ronald, what the original uh, inspiration was for that particular song back then? Uh, it was. When was that? That was. It's like
0: 1980 ish, right? And 1980
1: ish, yeah. That was. Mm. Not exact year here. Let's see.
0: Was it was it eighty? Was it seventy-nine?
1: Eighty. Well, you probably recorded in seventy-nine, but it came out in eighty.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, seventy-nine. Something was going on with uh, something was going on with with I think Muhammad Ali, and uh, he was he was uh, when was that that uh, he denounced his championship to be the heavyweight champion. And he said, "I'm not going to go to the Vietnam War. I don't want to do it." He said, "I don't want to do it." They didn't do anything to me. And then they, they, they took his championship away for four or five years, and then they were giving it back to him. You know, they were giving they were giving him the opportunity to fight. And and uh, we knew Muhammad Ali. We knew. Joe Frazier, we knew them. My manager was very close to him, and we had a little bit of insight as to what was going on, you know, a little bit. And I thought he stood up. It was, it was really, I thought it was really heroic for him to take on the United States government and say, I'm not gonna do that. Hmm. So you never know where the hero comes
1: from, you know? Yeah, you well, know. he was one of the all-time greats for sure. Yes, indeed. Um, the greatest, as he's known. Um, as he is, yep. Yeah. I got to ask you about a couple of my personal favorites since I have you here. Um, <laughs> and one, one that's, you know, really not on a lot of people's radar, but just to me is as funky as anything that the commoners did is give me my mule. Um, <laughs> You know that is just seriously funky, um and I don't think it was pushed as a single or anything like that, but uh it was on the um moving on al- album right yeah moving yeah. on yeah, yeah. Um, on
0: the on the moving on album uh Motown was telling the Commodores that uh we should move to california, we should move to California so that we could be readily at their disposal. And uh, all of the fellows wanted to do it. They wanted to move to California. They wanted to be that. And I told them, I said, look, I said, look, it is best for us to stay in Tuskegee, where we, it's easy to be a big fish in a small pond. I say, but if you go to California, Lionel Richie is going to have his friends that's telling him, you don't need the rest of the band because you are the one that's writing the songs. They would tell Thomas McClary, his friends would tell him, oh, you don't need, you don't need the Commodores. You know, you're the guitar player, you're doing this. They, they, my friends would come and tell me, you know, you're the personality, you don't need them and that. So I told him, I said, look. The success to the Commodores is the fact that we are from Tuskegee, Alabama, population 8,000 people. There's, there's no competition. There's nobody trying to separate you. Nobody is trying to offer you a better contract than this and that and that and that. So they're not going to separate the group. I say, give me my muse. Let me stay in the countryside so that I can skinny dip if I want to. I can go do what I want to do, and nobody's going to ask me why you want to do that. They just allow it. You got your freedom, you, you got your space, and you got your group. And that's why Gimme My Mew came up. Bottle. Boiled. Boom, boom. It came from that because I told him I don't want to go to California. I want to stay in Alabama. Give me my mule, please.
1: <laughs> wow. That's so cool to know the backstory to that after yeah. you know loving it for all these years like I have. I never get tired of hearing that. There's certain songs if you really love them, a lot of times you just don't get tired of hearing them. You know, other right. ones you kind of get tired of, but I yep. can never get tired of that groove. <laughs> um, wow, yeah, it wow. um it reminded me of the kind of stuff too that was coming out of Motown around that same time, like "Shaky Ground" by the uh, Temptations. You know, just yeah. that real super slow, down thick funk groove.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that uh, was. Right. That was one of my observations. All of the Commodore's music, if you listen to it in context with the songs that they were competing with at that time, Commodore's music was always a little bit slower. Their funk was just a little bit slower, different. It had give you time to wrap your your mind around it, you know? And and, uh, everybody said, speed it up, speed it up. I said, no, 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 no. This is where it should be right here right here and we would sit in that pocket and it would just just mesmerize you.
1: What what would the process typically be for a funk track like that would it be that you know you'd lay the bass and drums first or what how would it be you know assembled In those
0: in those days in those days they cut the whole rhythm section at the same time the drums the bass the keyboard uh, and the guitar they would cut that at the same time and uh, that's why sometimes it took a long time for everybody to get in sync, and then we play it. And after that, we go come back and do all the sweetening. You know, we, we, we put all the things on top. The, the rhythm track was cut simultaneously, all four of us.
1: Yeah, I think it makes a difference with that chemistry, that, you know, interpersonal human connection being yeah. part of it, right?
0: Yeah, that is, uh, that is the thing... That is the thing why I say bands in our time, would, it would be difficult for them to play a groove the same all the way through because you got four different people and they all got four different ideas. And when one gets inspired and he changes something, it affects the other person. So music is always revolving. You know, it's always going to something else. It's hard to stay in one place. Yep.
1: Yeah, it's that organic thing. Um, Yeah. And uh, I remember back then too, Ronald, that um, I don't know if the group came up with it or it was something that the label did or whatever, but I remember saying that the Commodores are aspiring to be like the Black Beatles, you know? We went to we
0: went to introduce ourselves to Manila, Philippines, and uh, the manager booked the show and said we're going to go down and uh, because we had only had one album uh, that was Machine Gun album. We put the Machine Gun album out. We went down to do some shows to show the people who we were, and that when we got to the Philippines at the airport. There were 90,000 people there in the lobby to meet the Commodore. Uh, they, they were playing all of the songs from the Machine Gun album on all 24 of the radio stations in the Philippines. They played all 10 of the songs. And, and uh, so when we got there, we couldn't go any place. It was it was like the Jackson Five were in town, you know, and we were just the Commodores. We had one song we didn't know we were straight from Alabama. We had no idea, but we went that we we had friends who were in the army in the Philippines. And McClary and myself went to one of our friends house for dinner and he told his next door neighbor, the two of the Commodores are coming to his house. We got there. And then they had to bring the military police to get us out. Everyone in the neighborhood was there. I mean, they were banging on the doors and hitting on the windows and things. I mean, 20, 30,000 people outside of his house. So they said, okay, we are going to do a concert at the Araneta Coliseum. Just spurred them on, we'll do a concert. We put that on radio. Two and a half hours later, we had sold six shows of 80,000 people. We did six shows there. Beatles did that, and they sold four shows. So we said we want to be bigger than the Beatles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You guys must have been just... Disbelief. Yeah,
0: it would. I mean, coming from Tuskegee where there's 8000 people and uh, then going to Philippines where there's six shows of 80,000 people coming. I mean, an hour another Coliseum had like five tiers. It was like the Superdome in New Orleans. Huge building, huge building. And on the very top, on the very top echelon, there was one boy from the stage. He looked like he was about two inches tall. He was so far away. And he was dancing on the rafter with when we started playing Machine Gun. I mean, it just tore the place up. It was wow. something. Yeah. Do you know
1: if any footage exists of any of that?
0: I'm I'm sure uh Victor Del Rosario, who works, who was just dis- distributing music in the Philippines, I'm sure they got lots of film of it. I'm sure That'd they have fun. lots of film of it. Yeah.
1: Wow. So uh, after that, it was sort of all, <laughs> you can only go downhill uh, from there, <laughs> at least in that country. But you can try mm. to aspire to the same type of thing in America, I guess. Mm.
0: Yeah, we would We would try. We were trying to we were trying to be concert tour. You know, we would try to do that rather than rather than rather than, than going and doing a stint in a in a place like we would go to Atlantic City. We get to Atlantic City and we would stay in Atlantic City for three weeks and like a casino and people coming and going, people coming and going. We wanted to try to get everyone there on the same day rather than staying there for three weeks, you know, so uh, we were, we were always dreaming, you know, we were always dreaming.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkenslift.net. Thank you very much.